Let's turn to Ephesians, but let's, let's excuse me, Colossians. <laughs> uh, let's, let's turn to Colossians, but let's start back in chapter 2. Just uh, turn in your Bibles there, and we'll uh, just do a quick review. Maybe this review is more for me than it is for you, but uh, I kind of needed this to, to uh, get through what... Uh, what Paul has been talking about here. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2. Excuse me, I keep saying that. Colossians, thank you. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. Verses 2 through 8 to start off with. But uh, by the way of warning here, Paul contrasts the deficiency of philosophy with the sufficiency of Christ. So if there's one thing that we take out of many of these verses, it's the sufficiency of Christ. And, uh, you know, uh, as Tom was alluding to this morning, if you haven't heard him, you will, uh, about their anniversary. And as it came out in, in the anniversary celebration last weekend, if someone were to ask you to suggest the most important qualities a minister can possess, you might argue for intelligence, education, leadership ability, boldness, holiness, speaking ability. And although those are essential components, perhaps the most necessary ingredient is the life of any minister, in the life of any minister is Jesus Christ and his love for the church. And... Uh, that certainly came out in, in the accolades that, that Tom was given, uh, was his love for the church and Jesus' love for the church. No one can truly serve God in the church without, the motiv without that motivation. And, you know, Paul, as we've been, been learning from him, uh, not only in Colossians but in the other uh, books that we've studied, Paul, too, he had a deep love for the church. And as you realize, he gave his life in service for the church. And of course, there's many verses of Paul going through trials and tribulations and in peril of death, and many verses that would uh, back that up. He loved the church because he loved Christ. He knew well the truth expressed in 1 John 4.21, which says, This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And so that's what the church is all about. And that's what caused him to write this letter to these churches of the Lycus Valley here in Colossians. Um, so he begins in chapter 2 by contrasting the deficiencies of philosophy and the sufficiency of Christ himself. And then, having stated the truth that Christians are complete in Christ in, in verse 10 of chapter 2, he gave three aspects of that completeness in verses 11 through 15. In Christ, we're com we, we have complete salvation, we have complete forgiveness, and we have complete victory. And then moving on, he he begins to refute or argue against the Colossian heresy, whatever that was. We don't know exactly what it was. We kind of 
can infer some of the elements of that from Paul's teaching. Uh, but we know that he dealt with legalism and mysticism and asceticism. So all coming from those uh, reliances on actually philosophy, not realizing the completeness that we have in Christ. So when we get to chapter 3, uh, Paul moves more into the practical side of the epistle. And he gives us uh, kind of a heavenly perspective. And I don't know if you all talked about this or not, but uh, we are to clothe ourselves with certain things. And uh, I forgot to bring my ranger's hat this morning. But if I brought my ranger's hat this morning and put it on, how would you identify me? Yeah, I'm a Rangers fan, right? Yeah. And uh, so, uh, you know, our, our military, when they wear their uniform, we look at them and we think what? What's that? Yeah, they're military and there's certain things that they represent and there's certain things that they do and there's certain things that we expect from them. Or the... Well, it used to be the postal carrier. They don't wear uniforms much anymore out on the route. But you'd look at a postal carrier, and you would expect certain things from them. So people wear the uniform of their profession. We do, too. And we're going to learn about that uh, today. What is our uniform? So that's Paul's point uh, in verses 9 through 17. And uh, you all have been studying uh, up to about verse 14. But Christians must dress themselves spiritually in accordance with their new identity. Tell me about that new identity. What did we come from and what did we go to? Okay, we were in darkness and wickedness and slaves to sin, and we have a new identity. We're new creatures in Christ. Now we respond to Christ and the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, we've died with Christ and risen to new life. Uh, and that, that produces a two-sided obligation for us. Negatively, what do we have to do? We have to throw off. We have to get rid of certain things. And you all took a look at those. Uh, we throw off that old garment, that old sinful lifestyle in verses 5 through 9. But then positively, we have to put on the new lifestyle of the new man. And to do that, we must understand the position uh, that we have in Christ and the sanctification process and the partnership that we have with Christ. So that's the heavenly perspective. <clears throat> All right, so we, we've been through a lot of that. But we, we want to make sure that we, that we have in, in our mind and in our thinking as we go through these verses today, verses uh, 15, 16, and 17, that Paul, number one, begins by reminding us prior to this of our privileged position as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, and urges us to clothe ourselves, as we've learned, with five virtues that will enable us to live together harmoniously in one body. And then number two, the call to love 
in verse 14 is the second basic part of this paragraph. So we're to, we're to put on as God's chosen people, and now we're to have love as the garment or the coat that goes over everything. It goes over all. And that enables us to work together in unity as the body of Christ. So that's where we've come from. So the, the third section here, verses 15 through 16, actually is marked now uh, by a change in syntax. So let's, let's just read these verses to get an idea of what we're talking about. And uh, chapter 3, verses... 15 through 17, uh, uh, 16 and 17. So we'll start with 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him uh, to God the Father. So we're going to be talking about some priorities here. Uh, and it's marked by a change in syntax. Prior to this, in verses 12 through 14, we're told to clothe ourselves, to bear with one another, forgive, and put on. They're in the second person plural. Does that ring any bells, second person? <laughs> okay. What is that? You do this, right? Second person, you. These are responsibilities that we have with the power that Christ puts within us to do this. We are to put on and to clothe ourselves with these things. But here in, our, uh, in our, our verses now, today, 15 and 16, uh, we go to the third person passive imperatives. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the message of Christ dwell. In the third person passive who is doing the action and where is it being done? Now it's third person. It's somebody else. It's not you. It's what? I, they. Okay. All right. And it's passive. We're not doing it. Somebody is doing that in us. So we see that marked difference here. I love to study Paul. He is so precise in his use of the language and uh, the meaning of what he has to say really comes out in his use of grammar. And, uh, and so now let's take a look at that in, in this light. Let the message of Christ dwell. These are two parallel exhortations. They're commands for us to do, but they focus on Christ. And then uh, it goes on to verse 17 uh, uh, do all we do in the name of the Lord. It goes back to the second, second person. Uh, it reinforces and it applies 
the whole Christocentric message of Colossians. Because who is that that's doing this, whether it's, it's us doing it in the second person or Christ doing it within us in the third person, who is it that's doing that that we've learned all through Colossians? It's Christ. So it's Christocentric, Christocentric message. It's all consistent, and uh, it all focuses on Christ. Um. So let's take, a, let's take a look at the first one in verse 15. Paul's concern for the unity of the body really comes out, it becomes explicit in this verse. And peace here, let the peace of Christ, peace includes a concept of agreement or a pact or a treaty or a bond. But it also it also has the idea of an attitude of rest or security. So I think both of those aspects of peace being a, 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 a treaty or a bond uh, and also being an attitude are both in view here. We shouldn't go one way or the other here. I believe he has both in view. Objectively, Believers are at peace with God. Why? Romans 5.21 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So objectively, there is that bond that we have. The war between the believer and God is over at that point. The treaty was paid for by the blood of Christ. And because of that, believers are at rest and security. So as a result of that, we have the results of that peace and security knowing that we are in Christ. We have that heavenly perspective now. Uh, Paul told the Philippians that the peace of God shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's that peace that we have that's objective and there's the result in Philippians 4, 7. It'll guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Here he calls the peace of Christ because it's the peace that Christ brings. Most of the other verses will call it peace with God. So that's the first thing we see. But what are we to let that do? It says, let it rule in your hearts. So this word is used only here in the New Testament, although some other forms and other compound forms uh, we've seen in Colossians 2.18. But it's used to describe the activity of an umpire in deciding the outcome of an athletic contest. So you see the ump behind the plate last night? You know, and he gives it that. It's a strike. And then he's got his third strike, right? That's the umpire's job. He calls those balls and strikes, among a lot of other things. And most of the time they call it right. But he's a human just like everybody else. Uh, I was a soccer referee for many years as the boys were growing up. And I know well both sides of the coin of being a soccer referee. I know the rules. 
I know what they look like during the game. I also know that everybody doesn't see things the same way as I do. They have a different perspective. I'm here looking at that, and somebody else is over there looking at that, and they may see a different thing. Uh, but that's, we go by the rules, and we try to apply them uh, as we best can. So this is rule here is used to describe the activity of an umpire in deciding the outcome of an athletic event. What rules does he use? What rules does that umpire use in this verse? The peace of Christ. It's right there in front of us. Those are the rules. Let that, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let it make and inform and shape those decisions that you are making. So when we make a decision, we have two factors that we use in making that rule, letting that rule of Christ, the peace of Christ, uh, rule in our hearts. First, is the decision we're making consistent with the fact that he and Christ are now at peace and thus on the same side, that we and Christ are on the same side we're now at peace. Christ is actually ruling in our heart with all the results that, Edward, that he was uh, explaining to us that happened in his life. Does our decision, does our thinking continue the oneness with the Lord that is in the believer's possession? 1 Corinthians 6, 17 through 18. Does the decision and the direction that we're going continue the oneness with the Lord that is in the believer's possession? 1 Corinthians 6, 17 through 18. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him, flee immorality. Now, there's, there's no distinctions there. If we are one with the Lord, it says flee morality. So are we consistent with that in our decisions? Are we consistent with that in the directions that we are going? Are we looking at the word of God and doing what it says? It's our union with the Lord that compels us to purity in that verse. It's because we have that relationship with the Lord that we flee morality. It's our union with him. In our verse here, Paul seems to have a specific idea about universal peace in view. First, he calls on the Colossians to let the peace of God rule. Rule translates a Greek verb that refers to the activity of the umpire. The verb naturally takes on the connotation of control. Who's in control of that game? The umpire. They can call it off. They call people out. They call runs good or bad. Uh, they control that game. Probably some people would argue that with you, but <laughs> as, as the one who applies the rules, he is. So... Uh, the standard Greek lexicon paraphrases this by let the peace of Christ 
be the decisive factor. Let it rule. Let it be the decisive factor. In general, then, Paul wants the Colossians to make peace the arbiter or the factor that should be given preference over competing concerns and interests. The coach gets out there and he says, no, that wasn't a strike, that was a ball. You need to clean your glasses. The other coach gets out there and says, good call, ump. You know, great. So, uh, what is the arbiter or the factor that is given preference over these competing concerns and interests of these two teams? Well, it's the peace of Christ. That's the rule, the peace of Christ. Uh, and in the context, uh, it is in our relationship with others that the peace of Christ should play this role. The phrase could indicate that the peace here is the inner peace of a contented and satisfied heart, but Paul is not saying that the peace is in our hearts. He's saying that the peace should rule in the heart. It's not just because we feel like that we have Christ in our heart and all that that brings. That's valid. There's nothing wrong with that. But that doesn't control us. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Uh, who can understand it? He's saying that peace should rule in the heart. So when... When we're faced with that, what should we do here? How are we going to proceed? How are we going to make decisions and act on them in our lives? Let the peace that we have with God and that relationship that that represents be the rule in our lives. Paul is saying that that peace characterizes the new self that he's been talking about here. It should be the ruling principle or virtue in our innermost being, because it is in our heart, and that it should affect all of our relationships and, of course, our relationships with one another in the body of Christ here. The peace of Christ, then, is the peace that both embodies something in our heart, but it brings the, those decisions to us. It was Jesus himself who said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. He gave us that peace. We can only have that peace that rules in our heart through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's because Christ is in our heart. Okay, so without sacrificing our principle, without sacrificing the theology that we hold, Believers should relate to one another then in ways that facilitate and demonstrate the peace that Christ has secured for us. So we need to agree and have unity, put on that love as the outermost part of our garment that brings unity, and here's the way that you can do it. Let those truths that we know from Scripture make those decisions. Let them rule in your heart. Okay. And at the end, what does he say? Be thankful. Yeah, here it is again. How many times have we seen this? <laughs> because of what Christ is producing in us, we are thankful. 
It's a constant theme. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 12. Chapter 2, verse 7. 3, 15, 16, and 17. And we'll see it in, in 4, 2. Gratitude comes naturally to believers in response to all that God has done. Wherein, ingratitude marks unbelievers. A spirit of humble gratitude toward God will inevitably affect our relationships with others. Peace and gratitude are thus closely linked. So let's go to the, the second part of our teaching here in verse uh, 16. I'm still trying to figure out this new schedule because when we left, we weren't at three services yet. <laughs> so, Jordan, I have until when? Great. I'm on schedule. Okay. All right. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Now, there's no conjunction between uh, verses uh, 15 and 16. You know, uh, you know, the conjunction is like and and, and for and therefore and but. So there's no conjunction in here. And uh, so perhaps that's Paul's way of uh, the obvious, showing the obvious parallel between verses 15 and 16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts parallels the same message. Let the message of Christ dwell among you. So there's some similarity in the language there and nothing that makes a contrast. The word of Christ refers to the revelation he brought, in, that Christ brought into the world, which is scripture. It's the revelation that Christ brought into the world, our scripture. It's the message that proclaims Christ. So what's included in that? Well, certainly scripture as we have it before us today. But it's the message of that scripture. It's the message of that scripture I believe that we're talking about here. I believe that we're talking about let the word of Christ richly dwell within you it's that message that proclaims Christ. Because this isn't just for our knowledge, is it? Well, it is, but not just for that. This is for us to put on and clothe ourselves and to then let that rule in our hearts to act that way. And so it's that message that proclaims Christ that uh, is in mind when he says the word of Christ. And certainly uh, that revelation is, is in Scripture. So we have the peace and thankfulness and unity uh, and love are all the required virtues. And they all come from a mind controlled by the scripture. So the word dwell here, let, let that dwell in your hearts, means to live in or to be at home. Paul calls upon believers here to let the word take up residence and be at home in their lives. How can that happen? Well, it can only happen one way, and that is through Christ's Holy Spirit in our lives. And that, of course, is 
through salvation. And in, in the resulting uh, sanctification process that we're going through even today. But we're not just to let it dwell there. What does it say? There's a little modifier there. Let the word of Christ richly dwell. Um, Richly could also be translated abundantly or extravagantly rich. Uh, the truths of Scripture, it, it's like, um, it's like Patty's apple pie. It's good. It's real good. But when you actually put that fork in it and take that bite and put it in your mouth, it just richly dwells within you because of all that she does to it. And she taught one of my daughters to do that, and she does it really well, too. One up in Alaska. Uh, they're all good cooks, but she does the apple pie well. So uh, it's not just that, that you know, that, that the Scriptures dwells within us. We should be memorizing and meditating on Scripture, and so you could think of that as being one part, how it dwells within us. And, uh, but here it's much more. It's identical with being filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. The word in the heart and the mind is the handle by which the Spirit turns the will. We still have our will, but it's under control of the Spirit. So you think of turning the cold water and the hot water on to get that mix that you want. Uh, the Holy Spirit turns the will to make it come out um, as it should. It's clear that these two concepts of, of the, the, the Word of Christ ritually dwelling within us and being filled with the Spirit are identical because uh, the passage that we'll come to are very identical and, and, and follow in similarity. Paul here is urging the community as a whole to put the message about Christ at the center of our experience, of our corporate experience. So we are, as we've been learning, as Paul's been flowing this down through here, all of this putting on love was for what? Unity in the body. And now we are letting his word richly dwell within us uh, and being controlled by the spirit because that should be the central focus of our community uh, as a body of Christ. His, his flow of, of thought is just uh, amazing. Um, and we'll see th in Colossians 3.18 and following uh, the parallel with the Ephesians 5.19 uh, and following as we go along. And we'll start, start those uh, verses next week as well. So what's the result then as we let the word richly dwell within us? Paul mentions two specific results of the word of Christ dwelling in the believer. One positive, 
and the other negative. So what's the positive here? We're down at the bottom of the notes here of the first page. <clears throat> With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. So here is the activity in which this letting Christ, the word of Christ richly dwell within us. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. So the first thing is teach in this pair. And uh, we find the teaching and admonishing back in uh, chapter 1, verse 28 as well. Teaching refers to the positive presentation of Christian truth. Teaching Christian truth from Scripture, of course. And uh, admonishing refers to the more negative warning about the danger of straying from truth. And so certainly that's the activity that, that's going on here that Paul is bringing to the Colossians in the whole book, as we've seen as we've gone through. Uh, put on good positive teaching. Put off good admonishing. And so forth through these chapters. Okay. And how are we to do that then? What, what is another activity in this? Let the word of Christ ritually dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. So that should be going on. Uh, I, I just remember Rocky Wyatt in a Sunday school class that we had with him before he left. And he was saying, these things that I am teaching you, by the time people come to me for counsel, he said, it's bad. <laughs> it's really bad. It's hard to counsel people and bring them back to where they should be in the Word of God. But if you people see some of this negative going on in their lives where they're not following the Lord, and you come alongside them as a brother lovingly in Christ and point out to them how they are straying from the Scripture and where they could, they could line up with what Scripture has to say, you say, you've nipped it in the bud. And they don't even have to come to me. <laughs> so the sooner that we can recognize our own sin, right? The sooner we see the, our own sin in our own lives as the Holy Spirit convicts us, the better off we are. And then for a lot of reasons. We don't have to go to Rocky or Tom or you know, Daniel or whoever. Uh, the Lord has worked in our hearts long before that. And many times that's because of what a brother has said to us. You know, that kind of works out in today's situations with security. You see something, say something, right? Well, if we see something that's not consistent with Scripture in a person's life, what's the first thing we should do? Get the log out of our own eye first. <laughs> Make sure our own lives are lining up with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then go to that person and lovingly teach them, disciple them from Scripture. And that's what Paul has in mind here. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Yes. You said that you have to look at to yourself. First. First is to do it the right thing and then go and talk to them. But they're not perfect. They also make mistakes. What's that? We, we also have flaws. 
We have to be right with God. If we see those about ourselves, then we take care of those things first before we go to somebody else. Yes, we're always sinning, and that's not what is talked about here. Uh, what's talked about here is those known things that the Lord is pointing out to us at that time we need to take care of before we disciple somebody else. Yeah, good question. Okay, so now we get down to... Um, The uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Uh, I'm going to punt on this one. So in the second part of your notes, I just printed out what John MacArthur put in his commentary for you. <laughs> he explains it so well. And then I also took some out of the a little chart out of the commentary that points us back in Scripture to some of the songs and psalms and so forth that we see in Scripture. Uh, it'd take us several more lessons probably to get through all this. And I think Tom has taught about that here as well and covered that very well. And you can go back and listen to his messages uh, on Ephesians uh, 5, what is it, 19, I think, also uses the same wording. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make some general statements and, and to... To, that, that coincide with what uh, these fine folks have, have taught us from the past. But it's not only information here that we learn in these songs and psalms and so forth. Uh, this is also emotion. When you sing this morning, I hope that you're singing with emotion that's produced in your heart, in your worship of God. Uh, and, and I, I think that's, that's what this teaching is all about here. Uh, so, um, and, that's what, and it comes from thankfulness, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Psalms were taken from the Old Testament Psalter, the book of Psalms. Uh, they sang Psalms, put to music back then, much as we do today. Uh, hymns were expressions of praise to God. Uh, it's thought that some portions of the New Testament, such as Colossians 1.15 and following, and Philippians 2.6 and following, were originally hymns sung in the early church. Spiritual songs emphasized testimony, like Revelation 5.9 and following. They express in song what God has done for us. So if you want the details of all that, like I said, go and look about what these men <coughs> have taught. So what he's saying is, as in, in our translation here, uh, there's some, there's some uh, discussion of how, these, how this part of the verse is uh, translated. And uh, it really gets down into the, you know, the, the uh, particulars of where a comma goes and what was meant by this and that, and we won't we won't uh, really get into all that, but the point that's being tried, to m being tried to be made here is the same either way you go through this. When you take it in the context of what the psalms and songs and spiritual songs were uh, the, the, in that context, uh, it's clear. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. So what we're really doing about 
about talking about these psalms and so forth is that we're modifying how we teach and admonish, a part of how we teach and admonish. And so we're going to be doing that with wisdom through our psalms and hymns and songs uh, from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts. Now that's just one part. Of course, we're letting the Word of God richly dwell within us and shaping our decisions, ruling in our heart. And uh, that is the other part of this as well. There's two parts to it. We have to put it on, but it's Him that's doing that work in us. There is our part and there is His part. His part has to come first. He's the one that produces us in this passive voice here in these two verses that we're uh, describing. He's the one that's doing that. But if we just go out and knowingly sin, nobody sees that garment on us. And as a matter of fact, he's going to get more particular because he's going to bring this down to us in verses um, 18 and 19. He's going to say, wives, do it this way. And he's going to say, husbands, do it this way. So he's going to get very particular with us next week. Don't let that scare you off. It's going to be good. <laughs> but it's just a part, as she was saying, of what God is doing within us now. This has to be the clothing that we put on. Okay, you're right. It's, it's, it's all in context that we have to take all of these pieces that we're taking a look at. What, what are we going to elevate above what we're learning here? What are we going to elevate in our lives above uh, letting the Word of God richly dwell within us and teaching and admonishing? Whatever that is, is an idol when it's above what we're learning from Scripture here. So we have to be constantly aware of our activities. Do they line up? Do they rule in our heart? Do they line up with what we see in Scripture? Is it that umpire out there ruling in our heart, helping us make those calls in life that do not elevate us above what the Lord is doing in our lives, but keeps them in subjection uh, below Christ being number one in our heart. So I, there's some good summaries there. We're almost done with the, today's lesson. That's great. <laughs> okay. Um, First, the message about Christ, or more broadly what we would say is the Word of God, was central in the experience of worship. Second, various forms of music were integral. integral. They were a part of, connected with that experience. And thirdly, the teaching and admonishing, uh, while undoubtedly often is the responsibility of protected particular gifted individuals in the congregation like Tom and our other pastors uh, were also uh, to be engaged in by every member of the congregation, the unity of the body of Christ. So the last verse here, verse 17, Paul concludes uh, with exhortations focused on the community life with a general command. And whatever you do in word or deed, as a result of all these things we've been learning here, whatever you do in word or deed, 
do it all, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. There's that giving thanks again. Uh, so the simplest, most basic rule of thumb for living the Christian life is right here. It's to do everything, whether word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is to act consistently with who he is and what he wants. To act consistently, we've been learning here, let that word dwell in you. And then to do these things, the second person and the third person syntax here that Paul uses. To do everything in the name of Jesus is to act consistently with who he is and what he wants. So that peace that we have from uh, our relationship of being with Christ, being delivered from the domain of darkness to the do domain of light, uh, and also then him, his peace dwelling within us and, and through the word dwelling in us, uh, shaping the decisions and the directions and the thoughts of our lives, that is what he wants. So this do everything is encapsulating all that Paul has taught us here. Uh, Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So he's saying the same thing to us in different places, but it all comes together in the same way. And he also reminds us, uh, we don't do it with reluctance or despair or we don't do it with legality, legalistic duty but we give thanks through him to God the Father. So if I'm not thankful, I may do what I'm told, but I may not really like it, <laughs> if you know what I mean. You can hear it in my voice. You can hear it in our kids' voices, or we see it you know, many different places. I'm going to do it, but I'm... Uh, Standing up on the outside, but I'm sitting down on the inside. And he says, no, that's not going to work. He says, we're to do it by giving thanks through him to God the Father. When we're doing that, when we're bringing glory to God, then we're not going to be reluctant. We shouldn't be. And we're not going to be despairing because we have the whole resources of God the Father at our disposal through the Holy Spirit and what Christ has done in our lives. And, and, of course, we know that legalistic duty just doesn't work. Checking the boxes is what I heard. We don't just check the boxes. Uh, but we do it from the heart. Giving thanks through him to God the Father is the outworking. That's what we see. So I wrote at the bottom there, uh, part C, with the little asterisks on there. To put on the new lifestyle is to put on Christ. That's the obligation of every believer. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Romans 13, 14. The goal of the Christian life that Paul has in mind here, as he, as he demonstrated in his own life, as we see demonstrated in the life of Christ, the goal of the Christian life is 
Christ-likeness. And Paul is showing us how to get there. This, uh, these, whatever we do in word or deed, these two words here, is a common way in Scripture of referring to the totality of one's interaction with the world. Whatever we do in this world, whatever it is, by word or deed, uh, everything, including what we say and what we do, should be governed by the consideration, ruling, of what it means to live in this world, in the realm of the risen Christ. Excuse me, not in the realm of this world, but in the realm that Christ brings to this world. <clears throat> and thanksgiving is important. And as Paul has done in other places, and we've discussed this before, Paul's choice here of construction should be honored. The giving of thanks is not because of Christ. It's not because of Christ, which would be dia with an accusative in, in the Greek here. It's not because of Christ that we do this, but it's through Christ we do this. It's dia with a genitive in the Greek. So there's a big difference. It's not because of Christ being in us, but it's through Christ being in us. And there, I think, is the distinction that some have talked about here. You know, what, what is this putting on? What is our responsibility of this putting on? And what is this responsibility of letting Christ uh, 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 work through us? And Paul just says here with one word that has some, some Greek meaning to it, or, or Greek uh, grammar to it, uh, one is because of Christ, but it should be here translated through Christ. In keeping with the way in which Colossians persistently presents Christ as the mediator of all that God is in the world and to the believer, so Christ mediates our thanksgiving to the Father. So he's saying Christ is the mediator of, God, of all that God is in the world. It's through Christ that we live this life. And he gives us the power to do it. Uh, so Christ mediates our thanksgiving to the Father. Our thanksgiving to the Father then, in turn, is through Christ. And our worship of him. And our obedience to him. And our thanksgiving. And that goes way back uh, into the Old Testament and the high priest. Uh, we might think specifically of Christ as our high priest transmitting our thanksgivings to God. Christ takes those and transmits our prayers to God. But since the idea is not taught very prominently in Paul, it's probably better here to think generally of Christ as the one who has opened the way for us to approach God. There's a lot of theology in that. It's not just that Christ transmits our prayers or our thoughts or our thanksgivings to God. He opened the door for us to give those thanks and prayers to God. Okay, so... 
Any last thoughts here before we talk about next week? As I said before, next week we're going to do verses uh, 18 and 19. And nowhere should the relational and social aspect of the new man be made more evident than in the home. There's the first place we have to reflect what Christ has done in our lives. The single most important social institution in the world is our home. Genuine Christianity consists of both doctrine and holy living. The New Testament reminds us in many places that an intellectual knowledge, checking the boxes, must be accompanied by a life that proves uh, faith's reality in our life. Uh, and that can only be done by vital contact with God in Christ. It's difficult to see how Christianity can have any positive effect on society if it cannot transform our own homes. And so we're going to keep that thought in mind because if we just go to the next verses with like, wives, you've got to be submissive and husbands, you've got to love your wives, we're going to miss the point. You do have to do that, of course, but we're going to miss the whole point of what Paul is talking about here. Those things, and as we, as we practice that in our home, are a reflection to the world of the reality of what God has done in our life through Christ. And of course, that's the message we want the world to see. We want them to see that that change only comes through that personal relationship with Christ. So we're going to tie all that together next week. So let's, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the clarity of Scripture when we begin to look at it as Paul intended it to be understood in that culture, in the principles that he is, the timeless principles that he is pulling out through Scripture here for us to understand and the application of those, the proper application of those in our culture today. And so uh, we just pray that our lives will reflect uh, what Christ is doing as we put on the, or put off the old man, uh, the old practices, and we put on the new man, that those will reflect Christ at work in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.